0: Part 2, Chapter 14 of Madame Bovary, by Gustave Flaubert, translated by Eleanor Mark Saverling. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. Part 2, Chapter 14. To begin with, he did not know how he could pay Monsieur Hommet for all the physics supplied by him, and though as a medical man he was not obliged to pay for it, he nevertheless blushed a little at such an obligation. Then the expenses of the household, now that the servant was mistress, became terrible. Bills rained in upon the house, the tradesmen grumbled, Monsieur Leroux especially harassed him. In fact, at the height of Emma's illness, the latter, taking advantage of the circumstances to make his bill larger, had hurriedly brought the cloak, the travelling bag, two trunks instead of one, and a number of other things. It was very well for Charles to say he did not want them, The tradesman answered arrogantly that these articles had been ordered and that he would not take them back. Besides, it would vex Madame in her convalescence. The doctor had better think it over. In short, he was resolved to sue him rather than give up his rights and take back his goods. Giles subsequently ordered them to be sent back to the shop. Felicite forgot. He had other things to attend to, then thought no more about them. M. Leroux returned to the charge, and by turns threatening and whining, so managed that Bovary ended by signing a bill at six months. But hardly had he signed this bill than a bold idea occurred to him. It was to borrow a thousand francs from Leroux. So, with an embarrassed air, he asked if it were possible to get them, adding that it would be for a year, at any interest he wished. Lheureux ran off to his shop, brought back the money, and dictated another bill by which Bovary undertook to pay to his order on the first of September next the sum of one thousand and seventy francs, which, with hundred and eighty already agreed to, made just twelve hundred and fifty. Thus lending at six per cent in addition to one fourth for commission, and the things bringing him in a good third at the least, this ought in twelve months to give him a profit of a hundred and thirty francs. He hoped that the business would not stop there, that the bills would not be paid, that they would be renewed, and that his poor little money, having thriven at the doctor's as at a hospital, would come back to him one day considerably more plump and fat enough to burst his bag. Everything, moreover, succeeded with him. He was adjudicator for a supply of cider to the hospital at Neufchatel. Monsieur Guillemin promised him some shares in the turf-pits of gourmet and he dreamt of establishing a new diligence service between Arcoy and Rouen, which no doubt would not be long in ruining the ramshackle van of the Lion Door, and that, travelling faster, at a cheaper rate, and carrying more luggage, would thus put into his hands the whole commerce of Yonville. Charles several times asked himself by what means he should next year be able to pay back so much money. He reflected, imagined expedients such as applying to his father, or selling something. But his father would be deaf, and he, he had nothing to sell. Then he foresaw such worries that he quickly dismissed so disagreeable a subject of meditation from his mind. He reproached himself with forgetting Emma, as if all his thoughts belonging to this woman, it was robbing her of something not to be constantly thinking of her. The winter was severe. Madame Bovary's convalescence, slow. When it was fine, they wheeled her armchair to the window that overlooked the square, for she now had an antipathy to the garden, and the blinds on that side were always down. She wished the horse to be sold. What she formerly liked now displeased her. All her ideas seemed to be limited to the care of herself. She stayed in bed, taking little meals, rang for the servant to inquire about her gruel or to chat with her. The snow on the market roof threw a white, still light into the room, then the rain began to fall, and Emma waited daily, with a mind full of eagerness for the inevitable return of some trifling events which nevertheless had no relation to her. The most important was the arrival of the Yerondelle in the evening. Then the landlady shouted out, and other voices answered, while Hippolyte's lantern as he fetched the boxes from the boot was like a star in the darkness. At midday, Charles came in, then he went out again. Next, she took some beef tea, and towards five o'clock, as the day drew in, the children coming back from school, dragging their wooden shoes along the pavement, knocked the clapper of the shutters with their rulers, one after the other. It was at this hour that Monsieur Beaulissieng came to see her. He inquired after her health. Gave her news, exhorted her to religion in a coaxing little prattle that was not without its charm. The mere thought of his cassock comforted her. One day, when at the height of her illness she had thought herself dying and had asked for the communion, and while they were making the preparations in her room for the sacrament, while they were turning the night table covered with syrups into an altar, and while Felicite was strewing dahlia flowers on the floor, Emma felt some power passing over her that freed her from her pains, from all perception, from all feeling. Her body relieved no longer thought another life was beginning. It seemed to her that her being mounting towards God would be annihilated in that love like a burning incense that melts into vapour. The bedclothes were sprinkled with holy water. The priest drew from the holy picks the white wafer and it was fainting with a celestial joy that she put out her lips to accept the body of the Saviour presented to her. The curtains of the alcove floated gently round her like clouds, and the rays of the two tapers burning on the night table seemed to shine like dazzling halos, then she let her head fall back, fancying she heard in space the music of seraphic harps, and perceived in an azure sky, on a golden throne, in the midst of saints holding green palms, God the Father, resplendent with majesty, who with a sign sent to earth angels with wings of fire to carry her away into their arms. This splendid vision dwelt in her memory as the most beautiful thing that it was possible to dream, so that now she strove to recall her sensation. That still lasted, however, but in a less exclusive fashion and with a deeper sweetness. Her soul, tortured by pride, at length found rest in Christian humility. And tasting the joy of weakness, she saw within herself the destruction of her will that must have left a wide entrance for the inroads of heavenly grace. There existed then, in the place of happiness, still greater joys, another love beyond all loves, without pause and without end, one that would grow eternally. She saw amid the illusions of her hope a state of purity floating above the earth, mingling with heaven, to which she aspired. She wanted to become a saint. She bought chaplets and wore amulets, She wished to have in her room, by the side of her bed, a reliquary set in emeralds that she might kiss it every evening. The curé marvelled at this humour, although Emma's religion, he thought, might, from its fervour, end by touching on heresy, extravagance. But, not being much versed in these matters, as soon as they went beyond a certain limit, he wrote to Monsieur Boulard, bookseller to Monseigneur, to send him something good for a lady who was very clever. The bookseller, with as much indifference as if he had been sending off hardware to niggers, packed up, pell-mell, everything that was then the fashion in the pious book trade. There were little manuals in questions and answers, pamphlets of aggressive tone after the manner of Monsieur de Maistre, and certain novels in rose-coloured bindings and with a honeyed style, manufactured by troubadour seminarists or penitent blue stockings. There were the Think of It, The Man of the World at Mary's Feet, by Monsieur de Blanc, decorated with many orders. The errors of Voltaire for the use of the young, etc. Madame Bovary's mind was not yet sufficiently clear to apply herself seriously to anything. Moreover, she began this reading in too much hurry. She grew provoked at the doctrines of religion. The arrogance of the polemic writings displeased her by their inveteracy in attacking people she did not know and the secular stories, relieved with religion, seemed to her written in such ignorance of the world that they insensibly estranged her from the truths of whose proof she was looking. Nevertheless, she persevered, and when the volume slipped from her hands, she fancied herself seized with the finest Catholic melancholy that an ethereal soul could conceive. As for the memory of Rodolphe, she had thrust it back to the bottom of her heart, and it remained there, more solemn and more motionless than a king's mummy in a catacomb. An exhalation escaped from this embalmed love that, penetrating through everything, perfumed with tenderness the immaculate atmosphere in which she longed to live. When she knelt on her gothic prie-dieu, she addressed to the Lord the same suave words that she had murmured formerly to her lover in the outpourings of adultery. It was to make faith come, but no delights descended from the heavens, and she arose with tired limbs and with a vague feeling of a gigantic dupery. This searching after faith, she thought, was only one merit the more, And in the pride of her devoutness, Emma compared herself to those grand ladies of long ago whose glory she had dreamt of over a portrait of La Valliere, and who, trailing with so much majesty the lace-trimmed trains of their long gowns, retired into solitudes to shed, at the feet of Christ, all the tears of hearts that life had wounded. Then she gave herself up to excessive charity. She sewed clothes for the poor. She sent wood to women in childbed, and Charles one day, on coming home, found three good-for-nothings in the kitchen, seated at the table, eating soup. She had her little girl, whom, during her illness her husband had sent back to the nurse, brought home. She wanted to teach her to read. Even when Bertha cried, she was not vexed. She had made up her mind to resignation, to universal indulgence. Her language about everything was full of ideal expressions. She said to her child, Is your stomach ache better, my angel? Madame Bovary Senior found nothing to censure, except perhaps this mania of knitting jackets for orphans instead of mending her own house linen, but harassed with domestic quarrels, the good woman took pleasure in this quiet house, and she even stayed there till after Easter to escape the sarcasms of old Bovary, who never failed on Good Friday to order chitterlings. Besides the companionship of her mother-in-law, who strengthened her a little by the rectitude of her judgment and her grave ways, Emma, almost every day, had other visitors. These were Madame Langois, Madame Caron, Madame Dubreuil, Madame Tuvache, and regularly, from two o'clock to five o'clock, the excellent Madame Homais, who, for her part, had never believed any of the tittle-tattle about her neighbour. The little Homais also came to see her. Justin accompanied them. He went up with them to her bedroom and remained standing near the door, motionless and mute. Often even Madame Bovary, taking no heed of him, began her toilet. She began by taking out her comb. "'shaking her head with a quick movement. "'And when he for the first time saw all this mass of hair "'that fell to her knees unrolling in black ringlets, "'it was to him, poor child, like a sudden entrance "'into something new and strange whose splendour terrified him. "'Emma no doubt did not notice his silent attentions or his timidity. "'She had no suspicion that the love vanished from her life was there.' palpitating by her side, beneath that coarse holland shirt, in that youthful heart open to the emanations of her beauty. Besides, she now enveloped all things with such indifference. She had words so affectionate, with looks so haughty, such contradictory ways, that one could no longer distinguish egotism from charity, or corruption from virtue. One evening, for example, she was angry with the servant who had asked to go out, and stammered as she tried to find some pretext. Then suddenly, So you love him, she said. And without waiting for any answer from Felicite, who was blushing, she added, There, run along, enjoy yourself. In the beginning of spring she had the garden turned up from end to end, despite Bovary's remonstrances. However, he was glad to see her, at last, manifest a wish of any kind. As she grew stronger, she displayed more willfulness. First, she found occasion to expel Mare Rollet, the nurse, who, during her convalescence, had contracted the habit of coming too often to the kitchen with her two nurslings and her boarder, better off for teeth than a cannibal. Then she got rid of the Homais family, successively dismissed all the other visitors, and even frequented churchless assiduously, to the great approval of the druggist, who said to her in a friendly way, You were going in a bit for the cassock. As formerly, Monsieur Bourizien dropped in every day when he came out after catechism class. He preferred staying out of doors to taking the air in the grove, as he called the arbour. This was the time when Charles came home. They were hot, some sweet cider was brought out, and they drank together to madame's complete restoration. Binet was there, that is to say, a little lower down, against the terrace wall, fishing for crayfish. Boverie invited him to have a drink, and he thoroughly understood the uncorking of the stone bottles. "'You must,' he said, throwing a satisfied glance all round him, even to the very extremity of the landscape, "'hold the bottle perpendicularly on the table,' and after the strings are cut, press up the cork with little thrusts, gently, gently, as indeed they do seltzer water at restaurants. But during his demonstration, the cider often spurted right into their faces, and then the ecclesiastic, with a thick laugh, never missed this joke. "'Its goodness strikes the eye!' He was, in fact, a good fellow." and one day he was not even scandalised at the chemist, who advised Charles to give Madame some distraction by taking her to the theatre at Rouen to hear the illustrious tenor Lagadie. Armay, Homais, surprised at this silence, wanted to know his opinion, and the priest declared that he considered music less dangerous for morals than literature. But the chemist took up the defence of letters. The theatre, he contended, served for railing at prejudices, and beneath a mask of pleasure, taught virtue. Castigat ridendo mores, Monsieur Boricien. Thus consider the greater part of Voltaire's tragedies. They are cleverly strewn with philosophical reflections that made them a vast school of morals and diplomacy for the people. I said Binet, he once saw a piece called The Gamme de Paris, in which there was the character of an old general that is really hit off to a tee. He sets down a young swell who had seduced a working girl, who, at the ending, certainly, continued Homet, there is bad literature as there is bad pharmacy, but to condemn in a lump the most important of the fine arts seems to me a stupidity, a gothic idea, worthy of the abominable times that imprisoned Galileo. I know very well, objected the curé, that there are good works, good authors. However, if it were only those persons of different sexes, united in a bewitching apartment, decorated rouge, those lights, those effeminate voices, all this must, in the long run, engender a certain mental libertinage, give rise to immodest thoughts and impure temptations. Such, at any rate, is the opinion of all the fathers. Finally, He added, suddenly assuming a mystic tone of voice while he rolled a pinch of snuff between his fingers. If the church has condemned the theatre, she must be right. We must submit to her decrees. Why, asked the druggist, should she excommunicate actors? For formerly they openly took part in religious ceremonies. Yes, in the middle of the chancel they acted. They performed a kind of farce called Mysteries, which often offended against the laws of decency. The ecclesiastic contented himself with uttering a groan, and the chemist went on, It's like it is in the Bible. There, there are, you know, more than one piquant detail, matters really libidinous. And on a gesture of irritation from Monsieur Bourissien, Ah, you'll admit that it is not a book to place in the hands of a young girl, and I should be sorry if Hattali, but it is the Protestants and not we, cried the other impatiently, who recommend the Bible. No matter, said Home, I am surprised that in our days, in this century of enlightenment, anyone should still persist in proscribing an intellectual relaxation that is inoffensive, moralising, and sometimes even hygienic. Is it not, Doctor? No doubt, replied the Doctor carelessly, either because, sharing the same ideas, he wished to offend no one, or else because he had not any ideas. The conversation seemed at an end when the chemist thought fit to shoot a Parthian arrow. I've known priests who put on ordinary clothes to go and see dancers kicking about. Come, come, said the curé. Ah, I've known some. And separating the words of his sentence, Hommé repeated, I have known some. Well, they were wrong, said Borussien, resigned to anything. "'By Jove, they go in for more than that!' exclaimed the druggist. "'Sir!' replied the ecclesiastic with such angry eyes "'that the druggist was intimidated by them. "'I only mean to say,' he replied in less brutal a tone, "'that toleration is the surest way to draw people to religion.' "'That is true, that is true,' agreed the good fellow, "'sitting down again on his chair. "'But he stayed only a few moments.' Then, as soon as he had gone, Monsieur Homais said to the doctor, "Ah, That's what I call a cockfight. I beat him, did you see, in a way. Now, take my advice. Take Madame to the theatre. If it were only for once in your life to enrage one of these ravens, hang it. If anyone could take my place, I would accompany you myself. Be quick about it. La Jardie is only going to give one performance. He's engaged to go to England at a high salary. From what I hear, he's a regular dog. He's rolling in money. He's taking three mistresses and a cook along with him. All these great artists burn the candle at both ends. They require a dissolute life that suits the imagination to some extent. But they die at the hospital because they haven't the sense when young to lay by. Well, a pleasant dinner. Goodbye till tomorrow. The idea of the theatre quickly germinated in Bovary's head for he at once communicated it to his wife, who at first refused, alleging the fatigue, the worry, the expense. But, for a wonder, Charles did not give in, so sure was he that this recreation would be good for her. He saw nothing to prevent it. His mother had sent them three hundred francs, which he had no longer expected. The current debts were not very large, and the falling in of Leroux's bills was still so far off that there was no need to think about them. Besides, imagining that she was refusing from delicacy, he insisted the more, so that by dint of worrying her she at last made up her mind, and the next day, at eight o'clock, they set out in the Hirondelle. The druggist, whom nothing whatever kept at Yonville, but who thought himself bound not to budge from it, sighed as he saw them go. Well, a pleasant journey, he said to them. Happy mortals that you are then addressing himself to Emma, who was wearing a blue silk gown with four flounces. You are as lovely as a Venus. You'll cut a figure at Rouen. The diligence stopped at the Croix Rouge in the place Beauvoisin. It was the inn that is in every provincial Faubourg, with large stables and small bedrooms, where one sees in the middle of the court chickens pilfering the oats under the muddy geeks of the commercial travellers. A good old house with worm-eaten balconies that creak in the wind on winter nights, always full of people, noise and feeding, whose black tables are sticky with coffee and brandy and thick windows made yellow by the flies, the damp napkins stained with cheap wine and that always smells of the village, like ploughboys dressed in Sunday clothes, has a cafe on the street and towards the countryside a kitchen garden. Charles at once set out, He muddled up the stage boxes with the gallery, the pit with the boxes, asked for explanations, did not understand them, was sent from the box office to the acting manager, came back to the inn, returned to the theatre, and thus several times traversed the whole length of the town from the theatre to the boulevard. Madame Bovary bought a bonnet, gloves and a bouquet. The doctor was much afraid of missing the beginning, and without having had time to swallow a plate of soup, they presented themselves at the doors of the theatre, which were still closed. End of part two, chapter fourteen.